You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing? Doing all right. How you doing? Uh, pretty good. It's, it's Monday. It's Labor Day. That's right. And we're still here putting in some labor. That's right. That's right. We're not taking the day off. We stay ready so we don't have to get ready. Exactly. Isn't that right? Pretty much. Yeah. I attended a barbecue at your house last night. You cooked some delightful brats. That's it right. It was bratsomania, you might even say. I wouldn't say that. Bratstravaganza. I'd just say it was a barbecue among friends. I don't wouldn't need to feel the need to come up with any stupid name for it. It's because you have no flair. Well... I guess we'll agree to disagree on that Although, one. you know, now that I mention that, you do actually have some flair because part of the evening included you demonstrating professional wrestling submission holds with the use of your two-year-old daughter, uh, prompted, I guess we should say, by a discussion we had about the implausibility of Lex Luger's finishing move, the torture rack. Yeah. Right? Well, as I roughhouse with my daughter and inevitably put her in 80s and 90s era pro wrestling finishing moves, and it... That's when I start to realize how ridiculous some of them were, that I did not realize as a child how this was supposed to act as a submission move. Uh, and it really drives the point home when I'm trying to do it, and I'm making the face, I'm selling it, and yeah. she's giggling. Yes, a fit of giggling is happening up on your shoulders. Those not familiar with the torture rack, I guess, could look it up online. But uh, it, didn't, it didn't do the trick on uh, Willa, your two-year-old. She's tough to submit. Somebody on Twitter commented that she went into business for herself. <laughs> which is, uh, she was working a little bit stiff. As usual, this week's co-main event podcast is brought to you by DraftKings.com. Your season-long fantasy football lineup is locked in and ready for action, but you don't have to wait until week 16 to get paid. Put your fantasy skills to the test starting Sunday at DraftKings.com, America's favorite one-week fantasy football site, where you could kick the season off by winning $2 million. It's the biggest fantasy football contest ever. $10 million in prizes are up for grabs, including $2 million for first place and $1 million for second place. Wow. I could win second place, right? I like how you think. You don't even want to think about first place. One week fantasy means no season-long commitments. It's fantasy football on demand. Play where you want, when you want, with the players you want. And turn your love of football into a life-changing payday. Just pick your players, pile up the points, and pick up your cash. That's it. You've never experienced football like this. This isn't fantasy as usual. This is DraftKings. Welcome to the big time. Ben. Tell them how to get the hookup. Jed, you hurry to DraftKings.com now and use promo code CME to play for free for a shot at part of $10 million in Sunday's Millionaire Maker event. Enter CME for free entry now only at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast in round number one. So Demetrius Johnson is still the toughest and prettiest. 125-pound man on the planet, big deal, now what? And in round two, new heavyweight champion, same old fucking goat rope. And in round three, so this Anthony Johnson, this guy just, this guy just doesn't get it. This guy. Ben? This guy. This guy. 
all that plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me but first like we always do about this time let's do a little bit of listener mail listener mail so it's labor day right right so we're going to start here with this piece of listener mail from evan rabelais he writes so the UFC sent out a letter to all UFC fighters discouraging them from joining any unions. What were your thoughts on it, and how do you think fighters would respond to it? Will it push fighters into joining a union faster, or will fighters feel that their job will be threatened if they join? Please discuss. Now, to this, it's a good question, especially for today. Topical. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we do need to add, I believe, and allegedly in there, right? Because several... Alleged emails from UFC brass have emerged in the past few weeks regarding rumors that there could be uh, a fighters union coming and I guess reports that the Teamsters are involved. Uh, but I don't know that it's been confirmed by anyone that these emails are the real deal. They look like the real deal. I've confirmed They've... at least one of them. Okay. This, this most recent one uh, I have not confirmed, but it seems on par with it what does. we saw I mean, before. It passes the sniff test. And if someone made this up, they did a good job. They did. They didn't they didn't get carried away. Didn't try to make it too absurd. It would be well, it would be tough to get too carried away, right? <laughs> like you couldn't push it much further over the top. Well, you know, the first one uh, I think when it showed up, uh, I think it was like front row Brian tweeted it out and it showed up on Reddit. And I asked around a little bit to managers and fighters and stuff and said, did you see this? And a couple of people I asked, especially a couple of the fighters that, that I asked, hey, did you get this? At first they were like, no. And then they're like, hold on, let me check and check their email. I'm like, oh, holy shit. Yeah, asking the wrong subset of the population if they received an email there. <laughs> and they friend. were kind of surprised. Like, After what? they did that, were you like, hey, have you checked your voicemail anytime in the last six months? <laughs> oh, no, they have not set no. up their voicemail boxes. No. Come on. If, you know, not for fighters, I wouldn't even know that was possible. Uh, but, you know, that one I was a little bit surprised at the kind of aggressive tact that the UOC was taking there to to warn people away about and it maybe in so doing you probably are warning away a lot of fighters where this is the first they're hearing about it is you saying like hey pay no attention to this effort going on behind the curtain the thing that's interesting about this latest one which i have not verified this one uh but as you said it does seem pretty much on the same level as the last one it it seemed for one thing, this one directly said like, "Hey, it, it lists all these things that could happen if you join a union, right?" And for one thing, the last one said legally you can't join a union because right. you're independent contractors. Sure. So um, we're contradicting ourselves from email to email now. You can, sort you know, of. join an association, but this one just goes straight union. Like, here's what'll happen, or here's what could happen if you sign a union card. But one of the things this one mentions was that uh, if you do join a union. It could cause you to lose, quote, the advantages and benefits of being an independent contractor. Okay. It then goes on to list no advantages or benefits of being an independent contractor. You know why that is, Chad? Hmm. Because all the usual advantages of being an independent contractor, like the freedom to work for who you want, not having to wear a uniform, the freedom to kind of decide when and where you work, basically just having to get a certain job done but not having a whole lot of restrictions on how you have to do it. Those are the usual benefits of being an independent contractor, and basically none of those exist for UFC fighters the way it's set up. Right. Uh, read read those other two paragraphs, which are my favorite part, where it talks about all of the the terrible things that could happen if you join the union, which includes Under- the word submissive, right. which is like 
it looks like they brainstormed adjectives where they're like, what's the worst adjectives we could use to make professional fighters feel like they don't want to do something? <laughs> How about the word submissive? Yeah, let's throw that one Read in Read those two paragraphs because those are, those are pretty good in my opinion. Uh, this one uh, under the heading, if you sign a union card, uh, Teamsters Union and Culinary Workers Union 226 could use your signed union card to actually limit your bargaining power. They could assume complete control as your exclusive bargaining representative and spokesperson completely – it's really small – restricting your import – It's not easy to read while you do the podcast, is it? <laughs> I have my glasses on and everything. Restricting your important voice during contract negotiations. They could be in control, not you. The second paragraph says, being a part of their union could force you to be completely submissive to union bosses and individuals who have not spent a day in the mixed martial arts business. Ultimately, a union could determine who you can and cannot fight and how often you fight. They could be in control, not you. And both those last lines are, are underlined. So that's the part that I like because you could basically do a find and replace Yes. For those two paragraphs for the union and replace it with the UFC. Right. Because all of the negative impact that they describe there are things that the fight company currently does with the exception of being your sole representative in negotiations. Sometimes, although sometimes I feel like they do do that as well. Well, for instance, in the Reebok deal, you did not get any representation yes. in those negotiations. So, but hey, screw it. You could just do a find and replace for both paragraphs and just say all of the negative things that the UFC is warning you about is stuff they're already doing. Well, and the last line uh, of this thing reads, and in case you still don't believe the unions have their own agenda, take a minute to read this editorial from the Las Vegas Review-Journal newspaper. Right, which uh, is a terrible, terrible plant editorial, by the way, if you've read it. It's just ridiculous, and there's no way on God's green earth that either someone from the UFC PR department didn't write that or the Las Vegas Review-Journal wrote it as a special favor for Las Vegas bigwig businessmen who called up and asked for it. Yeah, it does not read like something that the the newspaper independently came up with. On you know what own. I do like about that uh, editorial, though? It's 302 words long, just in case you wanted <laughs> That's a, a letter to the editor. Yeah, That's just in not case an editor. you wanted a flashback of what it's like to work for a newspaper where you're like, uh, I got to get this has to fit in the in the hole in the news hole for our editorial. <laughs> Can't be any longer than 310 words. Well, as for how uh, the question asks, you know, how do you think fighters will respond to it? Will it push them into joining a union faster or will it, they feel threatened if they do? And here's one of the big things like when we talked about that threat that uh hey you, you legally can't join a union and you can you can join an association as an independent contractor but you're not as an independent contractor you're not protected basically from reprisal from your employer if you do try to unionize so i mean it's debatable to what extent fighters know that understand that fine distinction especially as you said getting kind of conflicting messages uh, one being told you can't legally do this and then the next one being told here's what will happen if you do this uh but i do think that by sending out so much anti-union stuff you're kind of forcing a lot of fighters even guys who hadn't considered what a union would mean or hadn't considered the question a lot of them now are basically being forced to think about it. And that's that's kind of a knuckleball that you don't necessarily know which way it's going to break. Yeah, I'm kind of, I guess, uh, fearful that like this kind of thing could have a uh, an effect, though, that like people will be taken in by this kind of 
uh, you mean scared off rhetoric and scared off. Yeah, exactly. And I, I still, I felt from the beginning and I still feel like it will be an uphill fight to get this particular, uh, population of athletes to sign on to be a union. And I was reminded of that last week when I was interviewing Demetrius Johnson for a feature story that I ended up writing on Bleacher Report. And we weren't even talking about this. We were just talking about, you know, his upcoming fight with John Dodson. Uh, and he's kind of started talking about how he felt a little bit more. He felt young in his career, but he still felt like a veteran, like he'd seen, like he'd seen a, a lot come and go. And just apropos of nothing, he mentioned like, now people are saying we should start a union. And I'm just like, that's fucking crazy, man. And Demetrius Johnson, who is a smart dude and seems like a guy who uh, could be a high-profile UFC fighter who could potentially benefit from such a situation, uh, just seems totally against it. So I think you're dealing with a, a a group of people that is so disparate and involved in such an individual sport, and so many of them seem to come at it from the uh, conservative side of the political spectrum to begin with, that uh, it just seems like it's going to be a tough sell to me, man, even though... Uh, it would be good for them. Like, it would be a net win, I think. It would be good for them in a lot of ways. I mean, I think you can point out that – I think you can make a valid point that, look, these people are probably just as, if not more, interested in fucking with the Fertitas here than they are in helping you guys out. Sure. I mean, you can yeah. look at that track record. They have a website up telling everybody how awful the UFC and its uh, fighters are So and, like, how bad for children and people their product is. So I think you could, you could reliably make that argument if you're the UFC, if you need to, and they, they basically have, but I also think, you know, certain things that like the drug testing that really widely enhanced drug testing put into play that quickly, something like that would never happen if there was a fighters union, or at least it wouldn't happen that quickly. So I think we have to realize that, uh, while there are a lot of ways that fighters could benefit from a union, there are a lot of ways that maybe the sport wouldn't necessarily benefit from you. So it's not, it wouldn't be all just instantly puppy dogs and rainbows for everybody. Uh, I do think though, we see a pretty consistent, uh, trajectory for a lot of fighters where when they're coming up and they're looking out for themselves and they're pocketing money and looking to make more. Yeah, and I think they're about to be the champion. They think right? they're about to be the champion or in Demetrius Johnson's, Johnson's case, they are the champion. Uh, everybody's thinking about the next paycheck. Everybody's thinking about themselves because they kind of have to, because that's life as a fighter. And then they get toward the last days of it or newly retired or really close to retired guys like Josh Koscheck, John Fitch, those kind of guys now. And now it starts to seem like, hold on, we got screwed. Yeah. We, we just got straight up screwed. Everybody needs to open their eyes and see what to do here. Even though, Back when they had maybe more power to do it, they were less interested in it. Yeah, and it's also you find that once they get outside the umbrella of the UFC, they also instantly become more outspoken and 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 more, uh, I guess, vehement in their beliefs, which I think speaks to the level of fear and and you know powerlessness that the people who are involved in that company feel. But we went on we went on and on on that probably too long. Let's move on. The next piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Spencer Strauss. He writes, after hearing the news that Champy will defend her strap against Valerie Letourneau in November and watching Paige Van Zant squash Alex Chambers, I have to ask, does the UFC have any plan with the strawweight division? As one of the six people who still watch Tough, I find myself oddly invested in the division, but am bummed by almost every matchup I see so far. Is there any way we can get two contenders in the cage together, or is the UFC too concerned uh, with protecting their possible pulls? Please discuss. Uh, 
I think the UFC does have a plan for the strawweight division, and I think that plan right now is give Joanna Yedjechik someone that she can beat the crap out of on the undercard of a Ronda Rousey fight, or as the co-main, actually, uh, of a Ronda Rousey pay-per-view to try to get uh, a little bit of Ronda Rousey rub on Champy, that people are going to tune in to see Rousey do her thing and maybe fall in love with Joanna Yedjechik on the way. We'll see. And, you know, it's not the most competitive idea, but in terms of, of putting the 115-pound fighters out there and giving them the opportunity to catch on with your audience, I don't think it's a terrible idea. In fact, I think it's kind of a good idea. Yeah, I, I agree with that, especially because I think that a lot of people will, uh, if they get a little more exposure to Joanna Champion, decide, oh, yeah, this person is awesome. Where can I see this person again? Right. Uh, I do. Th- I think it is one of those things where – the UFC, in a lot of situations, and not just with women's strawweight, we talked before about convenience matchmaking. And this is kind of the thing, where you got the date in mind. You got one person that you want in that fight in mind. And then you kind of look around and say, who's free? Like, who's available right now that can jump in that fight? Because you've got uh, Claudia Gedalia. You know, that seems like an awesome fight. You win a champion in Claudia Gedalia. That seems like the fight to make right there, right now. And yet, well, she's hurt. She can't do this exact date we want. We're not going to wait. We'll just, we'll reach way down the rankings to get Valerie Letourneau, who right now, looking at the UFC's uh, women's strawweight rankings, you know, Claudia Gadelia is number one. You know, they do the champion as kind of outside the rankings. Uh, and Valerie, Valerie Letourneau is at 10. And so that seems to me like where, you know, you have this in mind, you know what you want to do, and then you just figure, oh, get somebody. Get a body in there for Joanna uh, and Jaychik to beat up on. Uh, I mean, I think you're right that I think that a lot of people are going to tune in and end up seeing her and think, oh, wait a minute, this person is worth paying attention to. And who knows, maybe those people pay more attention when she does eventually fight Claudia Gadelia. Uh, but it does seem a little odd that you're just saying we basically have to have a title fight in this division. Anybody who's ready to fight, step forward. Yeah, even when they showed the graphic on television – Right of where Valerie Letourneau is uh, is ranked, uh, she was way down there, man. You had to look all the way down to the bottom of the screen to find her uh, in the top ten. Um, I I'm excited about the potential of Joanna Yedjechik though, uh, just because one of the things that I appreciate about her is that she breaks out of the mold of what I think you could say the UFC likes to has liked in the past to promote about. It's it's female fighters or it's female champions, and that's kind of that they are Ronda Rousey, right? That they look like uh, movie stars, like they're going to show up on the red carpet in a in a designer dress. They're going to hobnob with Arnold Schwarzenegger and The Rock or whatever. Uh, you're going to be able to throw them on a Carl's Jr. commercial. Yet yeah, Jaychik does not have that same uh, kind of uh, sparkle to her, although it seems like we're trending more and more that way with her. But like she has a much more what I would consider to be authentic and like uh kind of cool charisma right. uh, with her like uh Eastern European sneakerhead vibe, which I think is awesome. And, and she rides around her hometown on like a custom bicycle and like takes selfies of herself with uh Goofy and Mickey at, at Disneyland and stuff like that. Well speaking of her sneakerhead vibe, I follow her on Instagram and you know how sometimes we talk about how the UFC does not deserve MMA fans, uh the the hardcore MMA fans Reebok does not deserve Joanna Champion. Oh, right, yeah. Because she, she is so enthusiastic. Like, she's the person, like, she's not thinking, like, oh, why aren't I getting paid more? Why, why aren't I 
What do I get cut out of some of these uh, negotiations or anything? Why can't I have my outside sponsors? She seems just so excited to get a bunch of free shoes, man. Yeah, and like, T-shirts. Like they – that has to be the best case scenario that Reebok could hope for in this deal is somebody who's just like thrilled to get your product. Which is – And there's money too? Oh, okay. Maybe a problem. Possibly a problem <laughs> in terms of those negotiations we were talking about. Uh, but I still feel hopeful and positive about – yeah, Jaychik, uh, and I hope that they can build her into something, man. I think that she's got that potential. And then you look at the other, I guess, budding star of the strawweight division, and it's a person who does seem to fit a lot more, uh, neatly into that, you know, uh, uh, image that the UFC seems to want to project for its women's stars. And that's Paige Van Zandt, who we saw this past weekend at UFC 191. Uh, and I think that, uh, the emailer Spencer Strauss, uh, hit the right word here when he refers to her fight with Alex Chambers as a squash. This was definitely a fight that was put on this card to try to make Paige Fanzant look good. Uh, I don't necessarily know that it succeeded that that well. I mean, she definitely got the finish, although third round uh, via armbar. Wore which, around like a button. Which, which, what are you uh, talking about? Well, she did, but like, she, like, if you wanted this to come off as impressive, she should have ended this thing in the first round, man. I, don't, I mean, I You're think... hanging around till round three, and then you gotta catch an armbar to make... Mike Goldberg exclaimed, Ronda Rousey ask or whatever he said that just fell flat. By which he means an arm bar happened. Uh, but no, I mean, I think you're coming at that from the perspective of somebody who realizes what Alex Chambers was doing there in the first place. Maybe that's for, a good point. For somebody else who just sees two fighters about to fight, it looks like, you know, young upstart Paige Van Jant just beats the brakes off of Alex Chambers from start to finish uh, and overwhelms her probably does seem pretty impressive and i mean well, i think you have to look at uh i mean give give page van zandt some credit there she, she is closing some gaps in the the holes and some of her technique but one thing that you don't have to question about her is just sheer aggression right as right. for how that would go over against somebody like joanna champion i think she gets her face caved in i do want to give page van zandt credit and she is she's a good fighter man for her age and experience level she's clearly uh, got some skills and, and a very bright future. She's just not the thing that they want her to be yet. Uh, and whether or not she becomes that, I think is, uh, still the, the million dollar question with her. And I, maybe you're right that they could throw her out there against Alex Chambers and, uh, and impress the layman. But like, did the layman watch UFC 191? Well, that's, that's a good I, I point. doubt it. I, we don't, we haven't seen a, a pay per view buy rate for that yet, but. If it's on the order of what Demetrius Johnson has been selling his last two or three times out, it's probably going to be about like 125,000 people who can only be considered among the hardest of hardcore MMA slash UFC fans, many of whom I believe are going to have the uh, uh, the sophistication to know what we were watching. Well, yeah, and I mean, Dana White was on Twitter like at 4.30 in the afternoon on Saturday trying to give away tickets to, to UFC 191. So that kind of tells you a little bit what the interest level was like. Next question this week comes from Mike Robertson. He writes, Gunny versus Maya added to UFC 194. Don't you dare act like you aren't too messant right now. Motherfuckers are going to be gliding around that mat all frictionless and shit, <laughs> each trying to out-nonchalant each other. It's going to be beautiful. Yeah, now here, I'm, this, I'm looking forward to this one. This is a teaching moment. Uh, for those that don't know, feel free to go to the Google and Google tumescent. Right. And you will find out what that means. Maybe do an image search. <laughs> go right ahead. Uh, at your own risk. Uh, but Ben, UFC 194 is awesome. 
It is, frankly, the card that the UFC would like to pretend that all of its cards are. Because <laughs> yes. you got Jose Aldo, Conor McGregor as, as the main. You got Chris Weidman, Luke Rockhold, middleweight title fight as the co-main. You got the Soldier of Dog, hashtag Team Dundas. Uh, Yoel Romero taking on Ronaldo Souza. Uh, it's just, it's nothing but hits, basically. And uh, if we do actually end up with Gunnar Nelson and, and Damian Maya on there, hashtag would watch, man. Yeah, I mean... This is one of those where, like you say, the only thing I'm wondering is, is this going to be the card we actually see by the time? Stop it. Stop saying I that. really hope it is, especially this one, man. Because this one, this really gets to the jujitsu nerd in me, seeing these two guys go at it. That There's nothing I don't like about that fight. I'm just... Sell me a ticket to the stare down at the weigh-ins for that fight. Because There's going to be a lot of cold heat going on <laughs> yes. in that stare down. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, I I am all about this one, uh, and here's one. That's one where I do wonder how, if the layperson, there's no way they have any notion of how awesome a fight that's going to be, and it's sad. It's sad for them. Yeah, and I don't know if that one. I mean, I guess I guess that one probably winds up on the main card, right? You got Tisha Torres and Michelle Waterson, uh, booked for this event as well. Another would watch. Uh, and Max Holloway and Jeremy Stevens, which could be your. Uh, could be a, an undercard fight, but will still be probably pretty fun to watch. Um, Unless you're Jeremy Stevens. Last question this week comes to us from Curtis Bouchard. He writes, first of all, the Lineker-Rivera fight was awesome. Second, should Lineker stay at bantamweight or move back down to flyweight? Succinct and to the point from Curtis Bouchard. Uh, John Lineker, bantamweight fight against Francisco Rivera this past weekend on the preliminary portion of UFC 191. Uh, ended up winning... Uh, by guillotine choke, uh, uh, in just about two, two minutes flat, a little bit over two Crazy minutes. Two minutes, yeah. And, uh, you got your money's worth, I guess. I think I saw, was it Mike Bone from, uh, over there from MMA Junkie saying that this was the second shortest fight in UFC history to be awarded a fight of the night bonus? Huh, okay. I so you can that. tell that they packed a lot of action into that. Yeah, it you know, seemed like much seconds. When I heard the time of the stoppage and it was like two minutes and eight seconds, and you're just like, how? How? That. Maybe it was just the, the, the strain that one put on, uh, the, the blood pressure as you're watching it. I think though, I think for one thing, Lineker has said that he's not going to go back down to flyweight, that he's going to stay at bantamweight. You could see the size difference right away when they got in there and were standing across from each other. You could realize like, all right, he is going to be dealing with that up at bantamweight. But if you were thinking his power won't translate up a division or he won't be able to take it as well as he can dish it out, both those things uh, were proven false against Francisco Rivero because Rivero tagged him with a couple solid right hands, and he just took him, just took him, and kept firing back. The thing that I wonder is what's going to happen when somebody, and it should happen soon, realizes, all right, I'm not going to do that with this guy. Right. <laughs> I'm not just going to stand there, plant my feet, and try to bang it out with him. And Francisco Rivero said something. One of the quotes sent around. By the UFC from him afterwards was basically like, that was a bad idea. I should not have let myself get pulled into that kind of fight. And I think that people are going to see, okay, he can still do that thing up at bantamweight. So don't do that thing with him. And it'll be interesting to see what, what's his, uh, response going to be when somebody tries to basically use that size advantage in a different way against him, tries to, to wear him down, uh, you know, in the clinch or wrestle him down to the mat and see what he can do about it then. Um, but for right now, shit, man. That guy knows how to put on an exciting fight. 
Yeah, and that's one of the things that makes John Lineker uh, more than a wild card, like kind of a marketable fighter at either of those weight classes, you know, especially if he could uh, reliably make the 125-pound weight and he's a dude that can go out there and knock people out. I feel like that's the kind of thing that flyweight needs, frankly, is is a guy to go out there and show the doubters, so to speak, that the, that's a weight class where you can have highlight real knockouts. You know what I mean? I think that the question though about if he continues to fight at bantamweight or if he returns to flyweight is whether or not flyweight is even really an option for him. He's missed weight four times in flyweight fights uh, during his UFC career. So you would think like if he can win fights at 135 and obviously doesn't have to kill himself trying to get down uh, to the flyweight limit, I would stay there if I were him to, to just kind of see how it goes. Uh, and, you know, I think he's going to be a guy that the UFC wants to stick around and wants to keep just because of his style of fighting. And if he can make a go of it at 135, that's probably the best thing for him. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, hey, you keep that in your back pocket. If you do in a few fights, you lose somebody out muscles you, somebody wears you down, uses their size against you. Then you can do the thing of saying, you know what, I'm changing weight classes. I'm going back down to flyweight. And assuming you can actually make the weight, then maybe it's one of those instances where people actually believe that you're going to get the clean slate that everybody thinks they're going to get when they change weight classes. Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, or a concern to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You can go to our website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that you miss from Tuesday to Thursday when we're not recording the podcast. It's short. It's humorous. We try to have some fun in there, putting a bingo card in there a couple weeks ago. We've had some photoshops. Had our drinking game last drinking week. Drinking game. One time there we was We apologize to everybody who died as a result of that. It was a bad idea in retrospect. That's right. Uh, so, you know, fun stuff happening in the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. It's free. You can always unsubscribe if you don't like it. So head over to comainevent.com and sign up for that. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Round one of the co-main event podcast is presented by the National Academy of Sports Medicine. The National Academy of Sports Medicine is looking for people who want an exciting career in the fitness industry where you wake up every day doing something that you love. NASM trainers improve people's lives by helping them reach their health and fitness goals. Don't miss this opportunity to start a career where you get to stay active and change people's lives. It doesn't get any better than that. The NASM guarantees you'll land a job within 60 days of your CPT certification or your money back. Ben, there's a free internet offer. Tell them what it is. Well, Chad, you can get a 14-day free trial of fun online programs at myusatrainer.com. That's myusatrainer.com. Restriction supply. See myusatrainer.com for details. Well, Ben, I don't think we need to spend a tremendous out of amount of time debating the public's indifference to Demetrius Johnson and whether it's right or wrong. I feel like that's kind of being done to death now. Uh, but I do want to spend a couple minutes talking about his, his flyweight title defense against John Dodson and maybe a couple minutes talking about what we think the UFC should do with him now. Uh, 
I expected this to be a more competitive fight. I have to say I went back and watched the first Dodson uh, Johnson fight in preparation to write that feature about them uh, and was kind of surprised to be reminded how close it was. Uh, John Dodson ended up having a lot of success against Demetrius Johnson in that first fight and dropped him three times in the first uh, 10 minutes. And I think maybe because we didn't quite know at that point how good Demetrius Johnson was going to be, maybe it didn't sink into us in real time how impressive a performance that was from Dodson. Uh, but then you go out for this rematch at UFC 191 and Johnson just basically shuts him down over uh, five rounds. Um, and a very impressive performance. And if nothing else, like stood as a compliment, I think, to Demetrius Johnson and how much he's been able to improve as flyweight champion over his last, what is it, seven consecutive seven successful title right. defenses. Uh, so I don't know. Were you as, as I know we all kind of know what Demetrius Johnson does now. And, uh, I think we're okay with, with people not liking it. I, I usually find it to be compelling, but I know a lot of people don't. Were you as impressed with Demetrius Johnson as I was in this fight? Yeah, I think I like you said. One of the things that was impressive about the first fight was his ability to adapt on the fly, right? Because uh, John Dodson came out there and did really well in the first couple rounds and put that power on him a little bit, and you could see him having to to switch up his game plan a little bit, and he did it really well. And this one, it seemed like like that was basically a microcosm, and this was him adapting for this fight in general, like knowing a little bit better how to deal with John Dodson and just the pressure, like especially, you know, I don't know if you saw some of the backstage interviews beforehand. They had Greg Jackson, I think, talking to Megan Olivia or something backstage, and they're asking him, you know, how do you prepare for the rematch differently after the way the first fight went? And Greg Jackson was saying that, John Dodson kind of got worn down by Demetrius Johnson in that one and had having to realize like, okay, look, this guy's going to be here and he's going to be in your face all night. So you have to be prepared for that and to be prepared mentally for that pressure uh, to not let him wear you out by constantly making you work and making you think. And that that was something that they had worked on for this fight. And then you go out there and Demetrius Johnson does exactly that, does it even more so basically in this one. And in the last one, it seemed like he really located a zone that Dimitri, or that John Dodson wasn't good at. Thought, okay, the clinch. That's where I can get him, and I can wear him down. He doesn't have a whole lot of answers for the clinch. This one seemed more like a philosophy that he had developed that he was going to use to attack him was just stay on him the entire time. When he gets kicked in the damn groin, and Herb Dean tries to step in and stop it, and he says, no, 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 no. Get out of the way. And he explained that afterwards. He, he was, uh, I was listening to the audio. He was talking to John Morgan and Kevin Ioli backstage, uh, after the fight. And he was saying that he had just kind of got it in his head. Like, I'm not going to give this guy any breaks. And then he thought that Dodson had kicked him, perhaps intentionally, a couple times during that fight, basically trying to get a break. And he said that I told him at, when I told Herb Dean, get out of the way, I told, I looked at him and I told him, no breaks. And you, and I went back and I watched that clip of it, uh, because somebody had put the clip on, I, I tweeted out that clip, and you can hear him. You know, you hear him very clearly say to Herb Dean, nope, no, nope, get out of the way. And then you see him look at Dodson, and you can kind of hear him say, no breaks. Like, just letting him know, like, there's nothing that you can do, even committing a foul, to get me off of you for even a few damn seconds. And that mentally is taxing. Yeah, I'm nervous to think that perhaps Demetrius Johnson could be immune to the techniques of Dundasso. Uh, but I guess we'll just, we'll keep game planning, man. You know, you Dundasso doesn't work on me, says Demetrius Johnson. You, you, brought Headline. The, you brought this up, uh, kind of an interesting game behind the game for this fight because, you know, they both had a long time to game plan for this fight. 
and John Dodson comes from that Greg Jackson, Mike Winklejohn camp in New Mexico, which is obviously second to none. You can't really get a better team to prepare you for anything in this sport than those guys. Uh, and Demetrius Johnson comes from AMC Pancration in Seattle, where with Matt Hume, uh, and his team up there. Uh, and you know, Matt Hume and Greg Jackson seem like they could just spin magic together if you got them at the same table in a bar. Like they seem somewhat like the same kind of dude to me, like a, you know, a little bit more intellectual, thoughtful fight trainer. And yet those two camps have really competing philosophies of how they approach things. Like, uh, Jackson Winklejohn is a huge super group in a lot of ways. They have tons of stars there. They just opened a huge new facility in Albuquerque. Uh, AMC Pancration is kind of the opposite. Demetrius Johnson told me like, they don't want a bunch of stars there. They don't want a bunch of, uh, uh, a bunch of professional fighters all in the same room, because I guess, according to Demetrius Johnson, anyway, Matt Hume thinks that that like interferes with whoever the guy is that he's trying to get ready for that fight. And in this case, Demetrius Johnson, uh, and in his own words, quote unquote, uh, he believes you can't build the perfect fighter if you have that, that kind of like all-star team, which I don't know. I, you know, I'm not a coach. I don't know how that works, but just like two competing philosophies for this, uh, two camps that you know are going to come up with the right game plan or, and are going to get their fighter as prepared as possible. And in this one, you know, maybe it just speaks more to like the greatness of, of Demetrius Johnson, but clearly AMC Pangration, uh, at least to my view, seemed to kind of out game plan for this fight. Like they had the, they had the answer and, uh, Winkle John Jackson, uh, didn't. Well, I don't know. I, it's easy to say they they out game planned when you have Demetrius Johnson to go out there and impose your game plan for you. That's what I just said. Anyway. I, I, come on. It's, I think that uh, one of the things that makes Demetrius Johnson so tough is that you can basically tell him, like, go out there um, and disguise the right hand so he doesn't see it coming until it smacks him upside his head. And Demetrius Johnson can say, okay. And then you can say, like... In fact, he does say, okay. When yeah, you tell him to do, yeah. and actually, what he says is, okay. <laughs> or the way that he just really seamlessly blends everything together where you can't necessarily tell, like, is he about to punch you or is he about to take you down? Is he taking you down right now or is he going to come upstairs with a spinning elbow to the, to the top of your head as soon as you think that you're busy focusing on stuffing the takedown. He just does so many different things well, and he doesn't necessarily rely too heavily on being able to stick to one game plan. That was one of the things that when I talked to him before this fight and he was saying, you know, the thing I miss about fighting in amateurs was that you had to be constantly working on becoming a better all-around fighter because you had no idea who the hell you were fighting. Like You put your name on a list. You told them, I want to fight. Can you find me somebody to fight? And they said, yeah, show up on Saturday. And you did, and you didn't necessarily know anything about the person you were fighting. You had to figure it out once you got in there and started putting your hands on each other. What's this guy good at? Where do I need to be? And whereas now, when you have six to eight weeks to prepare for a fight, you know exactly what this guy's going to do. That leads to people crafting these really specific game plans that they then kind of can't help but rely on, which he feels ultimately stunts your growth as a fighter because you don't you're you're spending like one you're living training camp to training camp and each training camp is about really specific things rather than being about everything essentially so now the question is what do you do with this guy uh he's coming pretty close to cleaning out the 125 pound division obviously leading up to this fight he talked a lot about how he wants to equal and then exceed anderson silva's record of 10 consecutive title defenses uh he's pretty darn close which is kind of shocking to think it, it doesn't seem like that out there to think that he will be able to do that um and obviously there are people 
advocating now for him to kind of move up for a super fight against TJ Dillashaw at 135, which I think would be awesome and amazing. And maybe one of the things you could do to try to get a, a little bit more fan support around this guy who's such an awesome but underappreciated fighter. But to hear Dana White tell it at the pay-per-view uh, during the press conference after the pay-per-view, uh, you know, he doesn't like to, to give a show too much of his hand or, or talk about really booking uh future fights at those things, but just the tenor of which he discussed Demetrius Johnson's upcoming career, it sounded like they'll have him stay at flyweight because I believe his comment was there's always a contender. Like we we're trying to work on something right now. And when we get it, like you will agree that it's the right move. Uh, and that kind of made it sound like Demetrius Johnson will carry on at, at flyweight, at least for the time being. And it makes you wonder what they're working on. Uh, and I think, you know, Henry Cejudo is probably the obvious guy to be next. Uh, but is there anything else up their sleeve they could pull off and how important is it that Demetrius Johnson eventually does make a super fight happen with TJ Dillashaw or whoever is the bantamweight champion. Yeah. You know, the, that comment kind of made me wonder that comment, like, Hey, there's always a contender. Like it's tough to say, is that comment coming from a place of resignation? Like, Hey, we'll always find somebody. And what we've learned is that it doesn't necessarily matter too much who it is. Like a Demetrius Johnson fight, maybe the UFC has decided a Demetrius Johnson fight does this. Well, that's what it sounds like when Demetrius Johnson talks about his conversations with the company, you know, behind the scenes. He said, you know, let's do, let's do a a super fight with the Bantamweight champ and you guys pay me $2 million. And the UFC basically, it sounded like to hear him tell it, laughed at him and was like, we can't pay you what we don't bring in. So, you know, maybe there is some evidence to suggest that they have decided that Demetrius Johnson is a thing is a commodity that that has already you know tested the the limits of what he's capable of drawing yeah which that would be a shame wouldn't it i mean that would be like a cynical way like for us all to kind of approach the sport to be like hey it would be awesome to see these dudes fight uh but we don't think it'll make enough money to pay them what it would take to get them to do it so therefore we're not going to do it i mean you for one thing you don't know maybe it would do uh a lot more if you up that level of difficulty for him. If you give them that, that extra challenge, maybe it would do a hell of a lot more money than a normal Demetrius Johnson fight. I mean, I can't think, I can't think it wouldn't do better. This question is just how much better, right? You know, wouldn't it be strange if after all of the historic talk from, you know, Chuck Liddell and, and, uh, Brandon Vera and all these guys who over the years were like, I want to be the first guy to hold the title in two different weight classes at the same time. It would be a little bit strange, wouldn't it, if the first guy to do it was Demetrius Johnson? Like, if they let him keep the flyweight title but go up to 135 to fight TJ Dillashaw, that would be, I don't know if you would call it a downer for history, but like... I certainly would not call it a downer no, for history, but then I'm, I, not, but I'm not an asshole, so maybe your your perspective on it is different. No, I just, I'll let you speak from the asshole point of view. No, stop it. Like, I wouldn't think that, but like, don't you think people would like that... The people who don't like Demetrius Johnson seem to have an opinion about him, and I don't think being a dual weight class champion in the UFC would change it. Really? I think that if he went up there, especially given what people think about how awesome TJ Dillashaw is now, if he went up there and beat TJ Dillashaw, I think even the haters with a Z would be forced to admit, okay, this dude is just kind of awesome. I think you underestimate the haters, man. <laughs> Let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll uh, move on to round number two. Uh, ben, I don't know if you saw this, but Max Holloway, featherweight contender, native of Hawaii, was doing some Periscope stuff this past week. I still don't understand what that is, but uh, okay. And he had the following to say. 
Quote, I heard Dana White talking about UFC Hawaii, said it was already on the agenda and just needed to get over some obstacles. BJ Penn said if the UFC ever came to Hawaii, he would come out of retirement for one last one. You guys might just get your wish and see the legend back in action. To which I say, are you fucking kidding me? No! <laughs> Whose wish? Who's, whose wish is being fulfilled there? All the all the people out there that didn't see that last BJ Penn fight against Frankie Edgar, I guess. Yeah. Fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Let's hope that doesn't happen. Well, Chad, we mentioned earlier during listener mail the fight between John Lineker and Francisco Rivera. Two minutes and eight seconds that thing lasted. Uh, Francisco Rivera, according to the statistics put out by Fight Metric, Landed 16 of 36 strikes. John Lineker landed 32 of 64. Did some quick math there. That means that according to Fight Metric, in two minutes and eight seconds, these two dudes threw a combined 100 strikes. An even 100. Nice. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? How are those guys feeling this morning? That's what I want to know. Sore. Sore. Not Just, lifting their arms above their shoulders. I hope just, you know, taking her easy. Having having trouble getting their t-shirts on. Maybe he's sitting in a dark room for a little while. You need to get somebody to help you put your free Reebok t-shirt on. Grandma, is that you? No, Grandma's been dead. <laughs> Whoa, dude. Dark. <laughs> just, anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We're going to go ahead and move on to round number two. Chad, before we get started with round number two, new sponsor alert. Uh-oh. This week and for at least the next month or so, round two of the co-main event podcast is brought to you by Fulton and Rourke, a men's grooming and fragrance company that creates products specifically for the way men operate. In addition to using the highest quality ingredients available, each of their products is designed for the ways men get ready. They're travel friendly, easy for being on the go, and extremely effective. They're solid colognes, Chad. And I know you, you gave me a box of these bad boys. Mr. It's, Cologne over here. Yeah. You'll, you'll notice how fresh I be smelling up in Better here than right smelling now. like a barnyard, like normal. Now see, they use a wax base instead of an alcohol spray, and they've been featured in GQ, Details, Fast Company, Men's Health called their Ultra Slick No Foam Shaving Cream, one of the best new grooming products on the market. As Ben just alluded to, Fulton and Rourke sent us a sample box of their product. I've been using the shave cream and it actually is the best. I also have their new uh, bar soap and it's great too. It's designed to perform with or without a washcloth and the blend of Moroccan red clay, eucalyptus, sage, and black spruce oils smells good and leaves your skin feeling clean and fresh. Yeah, and we've spent the last uh, couple weeks emailing with the owner of the company, this guy Kevin who's a good dude, a CME listener going way back, and he really gets us, as I think you'll see here, because as a result, Fulton & Rourke has a special deal just for CME podcast listeners. Chad. That's right. This is my favorite part. If you go to FultonAndRourke.com, you can save 15% of your total purchase by entering the coupon code DISCOURSE. That's D-I-S-C-O-U-R-S-E at checkout. And Discourse. And they thought of that, not us. That yeah. was their idea. And whether you want to use that as a noun or a verb, I guess, is kind of up to you. It's up to you. You just enter the word. And for our female listeners out there, you know, maybe you get something 
for the men in your lives who, let's be honest, are disgusting animals, and you, you kind of help everybody out. Fulton and Rourke, welcome aboard with the Co-Main Event Podcast. Well, Ben, we thought maybe it was a new era in the heavyweight division, new champion, a lot of exciting stuff happening. Uh, but this past weekend, a couple of things happened that sort of make you think maybe it's the same old, same old up at 265 pounds. First, Andre Arlovsky and Frank Mir have kind of a downer of a fight that Andre Arlovsky wins, but I'm not sure it was the kind of victory that's really going to help his case for the people who are trying to prop him up as a potential number one contender at heavyweight. If anything, it might have opened the door for whoever wins that Junior Dos Santos, Alistair Overeem fight, or whoever wins Stipe Miocic's fight against Ben Rothwell. Uh, and the other thing that happened, kind of a downer, Ben uh, uh, Dana White came to the press conference and announced uh, they're not even going to do the next heavyweight title fight until March. We've already been led to believe that that's going to be a rematch between Fabricio Verdum and Cain Velasquez. Uh, and Verdum, much like the previous champion before him, needs a little bit of time off. So he's not going to be ready to go even until March. Uh, what can we do, if anything, to ever break the heavyweight division out of this eternal funk? You know, I was thinking about that. That's the next title fight not happening until March. Right. If I'm Cain Velasquez, that worries me. Yeah, because a lot like, of shit can happen in there. Yeah, especially at this division, and that could, I guess, open the door to, for him to get jumped over, right? If if one of the guys uh, in, in one of these two upcoming fights does something extraordinary, I think we know at this point though that guy is not going to be Andre Arlovsky, right? I don't know. He could fight again and do something extraordinary. Who knows? I mean, you're right that you mentioned the fights that are already lined up. Assuming that those hold together and nobody falls out of those, you'd have to wonder who does he even fight if he's going to fight again in between then. It's not like there's a ton of guys hanging around in heavyweight who you could make a mark on at, at this point. But so many things could happen when you delay a heavyweight title fight in the UFC. You know, the champ could get hurt. Cain Velasquez could get hurt. Just some weird shit could happen. There's a, like, as soon as I heard, okay, it's not going to happen till March, you're basically telling me, like, well, hell, man, anything could happen. Yeah. Some new dude you've never heard of <laughs> could come in and win a fight and be number one contender. Uh, let's talk. Some, a some dude could get cut from the Indianapolis Colts and That's be right. fighting for the heavyweight title by early 2016. You're right. Maybe CM Punk has a couple of, of uh, fast food lunches. Suddenly he's in there. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about this Andre Arlovsky, uh, uh, Frank Mir fight since it just happened. Uh, I think if Andre Arlovsky had gone out there and starched Frank Mir in the first round, then, then, you know, his supporters as people who were trying to say that, that, uh, he should be the next number one contender would be able to kind of easily make that argument. He's won six fights in a row now, which is astonishing in the heavyweight division. Uh, but just kind of the way this one went, it sort of devolved into that kind of heavyweight fight that is, I guess you would say, uh, easily vinable, easily, <laughs> easily jiffable. Like you, uh, uh, we had that one piece of, of internet animation of Frank Mir's gut just pumping. Just heaving and, as he stands there otherwise motionless. That's right. And Andre Arlovsky kind of, as I guess somebody made a, a comedy thing out of like sort of looking like a video game who's just waiting for someone to engage him. Yeah. Right? He's throwing jabs and bouncing around but not making any contact. Waiting for somebody to put quarters in. So he has somebody to go up against. I think to kind of add insult to injury to Andre Arlovsky here, who ended up winning by unanimous decision, uh, Dana White also went on the Fox Sports 2 post-fight show and thought and said that he thought Frank Mir won the fight. So maybe you could add that into a little bit more, uh, you know, momentum swinging against Andre Arlovsky. Uh, but this this wasn't the sort of performance that I think we wanted to see, and and. 
oddly enough, I feel like there was a, a like maybe our expectations were a little bit too high for two 36 year old dudes who were going to go out there and scrap because of what we'd seen from them recently. Arlovsky had obviously turned himself around from his four fight losing streak. Frank Mir had kind of done the same thing with a pair of back to back first round knockouts to start at, out 2015. So I don't know, man, did, did we just get too high? Did we just get too high on these guys? I think that's part of it. Cause I think if you, like if you had matched them up back when, uh, Andre Arlovsky was, was coming off of that split decision win, uh, against Brendan Schaub that he had when he first returned to the UFC, you know, and, uh, if you'd done it back when, uh, Mir had just lost that decision to Alistair Overeem. If you, if you'd done it back then, we would have expected this and we would have, you know, not been thrilled with it still, but we would not have been so disappointed because we would have thought, well, what do you expect when you get two aging heavyweights in there together? One of whom Frank Mir comes in at the absolute goddamn limit for heavyweight at 266 pounds, just dad botting it up all over the place in there. We would have felt like we probably saw this one coming. And now I think that. You know, after Arlovsky was on that, that, that streak where he knocked out Bigfoot Silva, then knocked out Travis Brown in that crazy, uh, one round fight, then I think it, we got to think like, all right, maybe there's a completely new thing going on here. And this one seems way more like what we saw in that Brendan Schaub fight. And so now you've got, you've got two of each, basically. And it's tough to say which Andre Arlovsky you're going to see next. Even he was disappointed with this one. Yeah. Know? Uh, I don't want to say rightfully so, but it definitely seemed like he took a uh, uh, a very realistic look at his own performance. Uh, Frank Mir, I thought it was kind of funny, the expression on Frank Mir's face when, when the decision was announced against him. He kind of made this face where he was like, really? Huh, okay. And then he just sort of walked off, like just another day at the office for Frank Mir, who's had, you know, 50,000 fights in the octagon uh, and is probably going to go right back to training and fight somebody else in, in eight months. As you mentioned, we're going to get such a delay leading up to this, what we think is going to be Verdum versus Velasquez in March. Uh, TBA. It's TBA. TBA. Like all these dudes are probably going to have to have another fight, right? Junior Dos Santos, Alistair Overeem, Stipe Miocic, uh, Ben Rothwell, whatever is going to happen with Andre Arlovsky. No matter who wins those next fights that we already have on paper, we're going to have to do one more, right, for anybody who wants to stay in the hunt. I don't know about that. I think that the UFC would be very reluctant to do one more just because you don't have that many contenders. Well, you or, know, I don't think you would want to match like whoever wins over him, Dos Santos. I don't think you would want to put the winners together, right, of those two fights because, hell, man, if you can come out of this thing with three guys who could potentially be the number one contender at heavyweight, keep them. Keep them all <laughs> as active as you can. Well, yeah, but that's the problem is you, you keep them active and you're going to start knocking some of those dudes off and you don't have a ton of dudes that you can afford to knock off so i don't know i mean i think that uh obviously some of it depends how that stuff goes i think if you're junior dos santos you gotta really think like man the best thing that can happen for me is that fabricio verdum stays the champ uh and that then nobody's going to be able to use that but we've seen you and kane velasquez fight ten thousand times by now we don't want to see it again uh argument against you anymore uh but then because of the nature of like the delay in the heavyweight division and the the fights that you already have lined up, nobody like if you, if I go out there and I'm Junior Santos and I knock out Alistair Overeem in the first round and Dana White gets up at the press conference and says that is it this man is the next contender I don't care what else happens don't believe him don't right. believe anything anyone says until you're like at the weigh-ins standing across from whoever the UFC heavyweight champ is because that's just the the volatile nature of the sport for one thing and the especially volatile nature of heavyweight right now. Okay, because this is impossible to predict, let's predict it. 
who gets the next UFC heavyweight championship title opportunity. Okay, since you phrased it like that, I'm going to go ahead and say uh, Junior Dos Santos versus Fedor Emelianenko for the UFC interim heavyweight title. Okay, wow. So, Ooh, See how I, how I shucked and jived that, there on you? That actually seems incredibly realistic. <laughs> kind of depressingly realistic. Uh, I'm going to take Stipe because I like to say his name. Stipe. Are we going to do tips for the well-rounded fight fan? Yeah, let's do some tips. We haven't done that in forever. We've no. been getting a lot of angry mail from people who want tips for the well-rounded fight wow. fan. That's a rare thing for us to get angry mail about something we haven't done. Yes, that's absolutely right. Yeah. So well, do you have one? Well, let's just say what this is first before I kick it over to you. We haven't done this in a while. Maybe we have new listeners out there. Every now and then, Ben and I like to give you a tip of a thing that is not fight related, but that we have recently enjoyed and that we think you may enjoy as well. Yeah. Uh, my tip for the well-rounded fight fan, I've talked about this on Twitter. Uh, it's the new Eric Larson book. I'm a big fan of Eric Larson's, uh, histories, like kind of narrative nonfiction, yeah. uh, history Devil books. in the white city, devil in the white city known to our listeners. Uh, that's a good one in the garden of the beast. Also a good one. His latest one, dead wake. The last crossing of the Lusitania is about the sinking of the Lusitania, uh, during world war one. Also about, uh, German U-boat, uh, activity during world war one. And it's just a fascinating story. One of those crazy stories in history where, uh, a big thing happens that kind of alters the course of history and there's a whole bunch of little things that could have easily not happened or like a bunch of little rolls of the dice that could have gone one way or another and everything could have been different. And uh, he tells it really well and with a bunch of interesting personal tales. Plus, you're telling me you don't want to know what life was like inside a German U-boat I don't, in World but, War I, but One. I do. It's terrible. I don't, but I do. In case you're wondering, yes, World War One. you didn't just get out of the trenches and everything was fine. It was just wherever you went, basically a festival of horrors where you they, you showed up and they said, welcome to World War One. What's your greatest fear? That's how you'll die. <laughs> That's weird because I would imagine being in a underwater boat in the late 19 teens as like just a huge soiree, like a, a garden party down <laughs> you, there. You'd think you'd think so, but, but there were actually, a, actually lot, pretty bad? a lot of horrible ways to die. Huh. That's I'm surprised by that. Even if it went well. It was still inconvenient. Yeah, that sounds bad. Uh, ben, my tip for the well-rounded fight fan this week is the television program Mr. Robot, which just got finished airing its first season on the USA Network. This show, to me, kind of came out of nowhere. I didn't know it was coming. Uh, my coworker at Bleacher Report, Jeremy Botter, pulled my coat to it before, just before the, the premiere, and like the, you know, the the you should watch this. I watched it. It's really good. It's the surprise best show of the summer, as far as I'm concerned. Whoa. And, uh, whoa. It's, it's different. It's different than almost anything else you will see on TV right now. It's about, uh, computer hackers, but actually a good show about computer hackers. Not like they screwed it up like they normally do. Uh, and it's got a little fight club kind of, you'll, you'll, you will be reminded of fight club when you watch it. Uh, and it, it's a very good show, man. You can, uh, check the whole thing out right now at the, uh, USA Network website, which is the other surprising thing about this show, is that it's on USA, and what? it's good. What? So you can go to USA Network, I think is their website, .com, and watch all nine or ten episodes from the first season right now. I hope that you are as pleasantly surprised as I was. Mr. Robot. Mr. Robot. Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for round number two. We're going to get started with round number three. That starts right now.
Well, Ben, Anthony Johnson was up to what is rapidly becoming his usual stuff, I guess you could say, at uh, UFC 191 last weekend. Uh, he went out there and knocked out Jimmy Manawa early in the second round in a fight that sure smacked like a comeback fight for Anthony Johnson. Uh, and then walked by press row and yelled at the media some obscenities about how we should write more positive stuff about him. Now, I think that the most sentient point on this topic was actually made by you during your trading shots column with Danny Downs this week. I already agree with you. I've I've never agreed with you more, and I don't even know what you're going to say yet. And that is that if Anthony Johnson wanted us to focus on his fighting and the fact that he had just scored a big win and knocked out Jimmy Jimmy Manoa, the the way to ensure that would be do not shout at the reporters on press row immediately following the fight. Or just to not remind people that there have been a lot of negative things for, you know, factual negative reasons uh, about him to like, if you want to have people focus on your fighting, then kind of get out of the way and let them do that. Because I think that's what would have happened there if he had not have said anything. I think that if he'd gone out there and knocked Jimmy Manwa into the land of wind and ghosts the way he did, and then just walked out of there smiling and waving, uh, I think people would have kind of just focused on that. He might have, I think he heard a lot of questions leading up to this fight as he kind of had to. I mean, what else do you expect when you've been, uh, publicly upbraided by your employer who had to, uh, initiate yet another independent investigation into something you'd done? And that independent investigation came back saying, yep, uh, that dude acted like a jerk. And then the next time you show up to fight, which just happens to be very soon after that, you got to know that people are going to ask about it. The media would not be doing their jobs if they did not at least ask you for your thoughts about that. So it could have been kind of left there. I think he might have gotten off easy after the fight. People probably wouldn't have brought it back up again since they'd already covered it, except for when you walk out of there yelling at the media. And anytime you're basically yelling at people to say something nice about you, that, that might backfire. This is like a, the quintessential mixed martial arts story as far as I'm concerned. And like gives you an insight into what I would describe as classic fighter logic in that you basically snitched on yourself for this crime. Well, not, not a crime, but like borderline assault, right? Like we wouldn't have even known about this if Anthony Johnson had not gloated about his run in at the gym with this woman on his own Facebook page. Like he, he self authored a confession right. and put it on the internet and the part that is classic fighter logic is for him to try to blame that on other people to be like, Oh man, I cannot believe that all of these reporters whose job it is to cover this sport wrote all these quote unquote negative things about me when I confessed it on my own, on my, on my personal Facebook page. Yeah. Like that just seems like if you could take a snapshot of that and and when people asked you, like, what's it like to cover this sport? Just be like this. This is what it's like. <laughs> well, it seemed to me reading your colleague Jeremy Botter's uh, story on it before the fight where he was kind of asking Anthony Johnson about it and reading Johnson's response there where it was a lot of like, hey, it wasn't a big deal. The media is the only one who made it a big deal. We were both in the wrong is something he said about no, this, this no, one. No, <laughs> neither of those things that you just said are the, true. The, that the, it, no, neither of those things. Like, they both apologized to each other from, from what he said um, and that, hey, he, he doesn't worry about it because his friends and family know who he is he sleep, and he sleeps fine at night. And that was already kind of a little bit weird because um, he did say in there at some points like, yeah, I shouldn't have talked that way to her, but it's fine. It's not a big deal. Um, 
And then to come out of the cage and to yell, and it seemed like from Jeremy Botter's telling to kind of really direct some of that yeah. directly at him. Yes, he did, according to, to reports on the ground. That, to me, was where I started to be like, all right, he is not connecting the things that are being written about him to the things that he is doing. He Not only is he not taking the lessons that you would hope that somebody would learn from some stuff like this, he thinks of himself as kind of a victim in all of it. Yeah, like, it's 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 weird. It's, it, it's weird and it's troubling that it because it's like, all right, if that's what you're is that how you're viewing this and that's how you're behaving afterwards. It makes me think that we're we're headed down a a bad path here. It, it doesn't does. make it seem like we're riding the ship. Yeah, it's 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 troubling at this point because you get the impression that there will be a next thing yeah. with Anthony Johnson and you get the impression that that next thing will be the worst thing yet. And that's that would be bad because he's already been in the news for some terrible stuff. And to me the most interesting thing about this whole story is the picture that Anthony Johnson is painting of himself because when you talk to this guy, when you interview this guy, as I've done a couple of times before, he seems like the nicest person in the world. Like he, he seems, uh, like if, if, if these reports about him, you know, with domestic violence and, and having a dog kennel where he apparently crops the pit bull's ears himself and this story about him tossing the woman's yoga mat, if none of that had ever become public, the impression you would get from Anthony Johnson's public interactions, like around what I would describe as standard like fight media obligations. You would think he was a super nice dude. And yet simply by his own actions, kind of extracurricular of all that, this completely different portrait of this man has emerged as like a really scary person. And like, as you said, this guy that just doesn't seem to get it and seems to somehow paint himself as the victim in all of that. And I don't really even know what to think of that, except that, uh, you give a guy a Twitter account or a Facebook account and like he, he will expose himself to you, uh, his character. I guess I will say he will expose his character to you. Okay. We will be lucky if they don't all expose themselves to us. But, uh, like you, that's the one thing that I think is the great about social media is that like, whether they know it or not, people will expose their characters to you. You know, you mentioned the the dog kennel thing and the the docking of the dogs, right, which ears. seemed like a much smaller deal, yeah. but was also this past fight week just like another weird thing to to be associated with Anthony Johnson. I think that one, if he had not had these other problems going on, would not have risen to the level that it did. Right? Because well, none I mean, of this like, would, man. The yoga mat thing wouldn't have risen to the level he did. That's but true. unfortunately. Like the things that you have done matter and your reputation matters. And, and, uh, the, you know, the, when you apply for a job and you submit a resume, the stuff on that resume matters. So like, if you're the guy that we know has pleaded guilty to domestic violence and been associated with what, three different domestic violence allegations, and then you get into uh, a physical, well, not a physical, but like an altercation with a woman at the gym and then you gloat about it on your Facebook page over nothing. Really? That's a big, bigger deal than if someone with no reputation for that would have done it. And that's just how the world works. So you're saying I can do it. Yeah. I can throw it, yoga mats just left and right. Yes. Yeah. Who hasn't gotten mad and throwed people's stuff across the room as Anthony Johnson asked this week? <laughs> well, yeah, the thing too is you look at the light heavyweight division where it's at right now. He's still number one. He's going to come number back one into the picture here, you know, probably pretty soon. You got Cormier and Gustafson set to do it up here pretty quickly uh, with John Jones still missing in action. 
the the fighter Anthony Johnson, you kind of just wish that all this other like you didn't have to deal with all this other stuff because he is going to be back in that picture one way or another pretty quickly. Yeah, he's back in the picture right now, right? After knocking out Jimmy Jimmy Manoa and uh solidifying, I guess, his opinion or or uh, you know, uh retaining his position as number one ranked challenger according to the UFC's strange rankings where they don't rank the champion. Yeah. Uh and so and you know, the light heavyweight is so shallow right now that yeah, man, he's he's right back in that mix right now. And like if there was an injury, if Alexander Gustafson or Daniel Cormier got injured, you'd he'd be probably be the first guy they'd try to inject into the main event of UFC one ninety two, which is coming up here shortly. Yeah, and see it's hard to really just get behind and, and and just focus on the fighting aspect of it. And I know there have been conversations in the MMA media now about like to what extent we should be doing that, like to, to what extent we should be focusing on X and O stuff and out of the cage kind of stuff. And I think especially with a sport like professional fighting, if we're going to talk about how awesome this dude is at violence upon other men, if he's also getting in trouble for violence upon women outside the cage, I don't really think you can separate those two. You you have to deal with them both. Yeah, you absolutely cannot separate them. It's like if if an airline pilot went out and got a bunch of DUIs, that would be news because how long can that guy continue to be an airline pilot? Like how many drug arrests can you have and still be a pharmacist? You know, four. Oh, okay, good. I, I wondered how you wound up on this podcast. <laughs> I mean, you got your pharmacy license revoked, I see. Hey, there, no convictions, though. That's the thing. Yeah, just, just, uh, what did you do? Plea bargain that? You plead out? I, well, uh, my, my legal counsel, your wife, uh, did a really good job there. She will do that. She's a good lawyer. Uh, let's do just saying stuff, Ben, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Uh, I guess I went first on. Are you fucking kidding me? So what's your just saying stuff this week? Well, Jeb, we talked a little bit earlier in the show about Paige Van Zandt's win over Alex Chambers. And Squash. I will say we both were, were watching this one and we noticed in the commentary, Joe Rogan at one point began to talk about the possibility that with Paige Van Zandt racking up these wins that she might soon find herself face to face with Joanna Champion. And he seemed genuinely concerned as if, Oh, hold on. Be careful, Paige Van Zandt. You're winning too many fights, and if you keep on this path, you might end up in a cage opposite Champy, Yuana Yinjaychik. He seemed like he was worried for Paige Van Zandt's health. Yes. That she was winning too much, mm-hmm. and that, therefore, would come to a bad end at the hands of Yuana Champion. I'm just saying, A, that tells you something about what's going on there in that whole picture, and B, he's absolutely right to be concerned. Because I think that Yuana Champion would do something terrible to Paige Van Zant, and yet at the same time, would watch. Hashtag would watch. Just saying. Just saying. Well, Ben, the UFC held one of its big seasonal press conferences last week to announce its next uh, upcoming slate of fights. What do they do this now? Quarterly or like once every three three times a year? We've had three of these things this year, right? Sure. Uh, and uh, they brought Conor McGregor to it naturally. And he, of course, turned the whole thing into the Conor McGregor show and put himself over like gangbusters and crapped all over everybody else. Essentially made the, uh, the whole roster on the stage there look like a bunch of schmucks. Uh, and even though he did the whole thing with his own fly down, according to later reports from the UFC president, he almost got into it with Cowboy Cerrone, which 
Jesus, you guys just take my money already. <laughs> Hashtag would watch. Would watch. Uh, he got into it with Jose Aldo again. He called out Rafael Dos Anjos and uh, get the red panties out. That's right. Uh, this week, I guess I'm just saying we'd all be lying, wouldn't we? If we didn't admit that the coolest thing about the big schmoz press conferences that the UFC likes to do now is the idea that just maybe one of them will turn into an enormous, crazy fucking brawl. Right? Am I right? I'm just saying. You're not wrong. Just Donald Cerrone's cowboy hat flying across the room, a, a, a cream-colored vest ends up crumpled on the floor. Can't uh, tell who it's from. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week uh, to look ahead to a bunch of stuff that's happening the following weekend. That Bellator Dynamite oh, show right. will we'll be on like Donkey Kong. I know we're excited to talk about that. Uh, as for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Can't you just picture, though, when that huge brawl breaks out and you got Frankie Edgar kind of standing off to the side, peering down out over his spectacles saying, Gentlemen. Gentlemen, please. He's trying to, he's trying to restore order. Knocking his pipe to the side of the table. <laughs>